Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 73, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Now, uh, this show is all about classic gaming, it's about old school video games, it's about computers and systems from back in the day, but this week, you're smelling rather retro, Ravi. Oh, I've got, I've got Lynx Africa on. <laughs> I didn't even know you could still get Lynx Africa. Oh, I, I kind of I saw it in the shop and, you know, Alan Partridge just kind of thought, Africa, yeah. Let me uh, see the, I want to see the can, pass it over. There you go. Is it's it taking one. you back? Is this one of those cans where it's got like the, the amount that a full can's got compressed? Yeah, yeah, it's like a little tiny compressed Lynx Africa kind of style. It never seems as much though, does it? No. I'm going to spray here. Oh, the oh. studio. <laughs> yeah. it takes me back to like 1995. Oh, kind of hair gel and uh, under-18s discos. Yeah, my, Ben Sherman shirt on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's nice to know that you keep every part of your life retro, Ravi. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm just rocking it old school. <laughs> now, uh, if you are a new listener to the podcast, welcome along. Uh, judging by the iTunes chart, I think we're number three last week. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much. And a lot of people kind of think that the iTunes chart is the number of listens, and it's not the number of listens, it's the number of new listeners that you're getting. So if we're hiring that chart, it means we're getting more people and the podcast is growing, so it's great. Yeah, new people are coming through the door all the time, and obviously you can help us with that as well. Uh, you know, every like thumb up that we get on a YouTube video, every comment, every review that we get on iTunes, which, you know, this is why these are so important, because it helps us rise up the chart, and then obviously the show grows, it reaches out to new people, and... The retro ad just keeps getting bigger and bigger, which is, you know, really, really appreciated. So please do keep your comments, your thumbs up and your reviews and ratings and all that coming in. And of course, another way that you can support the Retro Hour podcast is by helping us out with the running of this show and leaving a donation. Now, we do have a little tip jar on the front page of our website, theretrohour.com. Oh, getting a nice there. Hearty, lung full of that Lynx African era. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we do have a little tip jar at theretrohour.com. If you want to put anything into there, it all goes back into the running of this show. You know, we get people who just donate like a euro or something and they're like, well, that's all I could give you guys. And we're like, that's amazing. You know, every if everyone donated a euro, we could do this full time as our job, couldn't we? And, and you know, we both work yeah. kind of full time jobs anyway. And having this kind of extra money really helps because we've got so much to do for the retro hour. We've yeah. got to, you know, find guests, we've got to research kind of news stories and oh, it takes a lot of work, you know, guys. Yeah, and even just, you know, the running costs of it as well. The studio that we're in now is a professional radio studio. You know, we, we have SoundCloud premium subscriptions, so don't want to hammer the point home too much, but, you know, any little donation that we get will go back into the running and just helps us keep doing the show week in, week out. So I want to say a massive thank you this week to everyone who's donated, and, of course, that does automatically qualify you for your place in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Now, thank you to the team at Roller, Liam Clancy, William Bateman, and Lee Bestford. Who all made donations to the running of the Retro Hour podcast this week. It's massively appreciated. If you'd like to do the same, it'll take you a moment. All you've got to do is head to our website, theretrohour.com. We have a PayPal link. Click it, put your email in. That's all it takes. And there is also a Bitcoin donation on there as well if uh, you don't want to admit that you listen to the show. That's understandable. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, every week on the show, um, we do have a fascinating guest in the second half an hour. Now, this week, we've got Jeremy Thackeray. Now, he's from the Centre for Computing History in Cambridge. And, you know, Cambridge, there's a lot of computing history in that town. Yeah, I mean, you know, we do say this in the interview with him, but really, I mean, it's kind of like the, the Silicon Valley of the UK, really, isn't it? Yeah, totally, and it's still up to modern days, it is. And uh, this really fascinating interview, because he's, he's talking about, you know, you've probably got a big collection if you've been listening, and maybe 
you wonder what to do with it. Well, they're, they're actually displaying it and kind of getting people to come in, getting school kids involved. It's, it's really good. And this place, I mean, it, it is a pretty big museum. I mean, you know, I know they've got aspirations for like a bigger space in the future because they've got that much. What I think he tells us they've only got like 5% of their collection on display at yeah. any one time. So it proves just how much they've got there. And being based in Cambridge, like you said, you know, companies like Sinclair, Acorn, you know, were both based in Cambridge back in the day. So they've got a very strong kind of link to that history there as well. But also, unlike a lot of museums where you walk in and like everything's in glass boxes, here it's all hands-on, you can play with everything. Yeah, it's all accessible, you can just sit down and get on your old school beeb and just go mad. Well, they've even got like an 80s classroom recreation full of BBC micros and oh, stuff so like cool. that. So. Really interesting interview, this one. So Jeremy Thackeray, the assistant curator for the Centre of Computing History in Cambridge, is going to be our special guest on the Retro Hour in around 15 minutes from now. Now, before we get to that, there are some really cool stories that have been making the headlines in the world of retro this week, including a follow-up to one of my all-time favourite games. I can't believe we're getting a new Micro Machines game. Where has this been, Dan? I've not seen this in any of the press. And, you know, this looks really good. And who's it by? Well, it's um, Stuart Campbell and uh, Gavin Cooper. And obviously, Stuart, you know, he's been in like you know video games for years, journalist. He also has worked at loads of companies and Codemasters, obviously. But I think he actually says in this interview with... Um, the six the sixaxis.com he says that you know no matter what codemaster games get released the one people always ask about is micro machines i loved micro machines and even to the point that um i'd uh, every platform i'd play it on you know it'd be amiga mega drive but also they had the playstation version micro machines v3 yeah the kind of 3d-ish one wasn't yeah it? that that was really good as well and it's kind of it's kind of disappeared like where, where did it go it just when there were like i know on the ps2 there was like a micro machines game but it wasn't really in the flavor of the original so really what you know looking at this game and the gameplay it's obviously modern graphics but it's got a lot of kind of throwback to the 80s and 90s in there as well you're like <laughs> there's a couple of courses where you're driving along and like hungry hippos try to eat you yeah yeah they're saying uh, gi joe's involved in yeah. there so they've got all of the kind of old hasbro branded stuff in there as well but it's it's really interactive like Micro Machines always had that feel of a you're on a table or you're on a pool table or you're in someone's house. But now with the 3D graphics and kind of effects you can do with dynamic lighting, you can make it a much more exciting course and you can have, you know, water effects splashing everywhere and sparks and all this kind of stuff to avoid. Well, you know, we've always said, because whenever we have like gaming lights and that, Micro Machines always comes out on an Amiga, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. But we've all said, wouldn't it be cool to play it online? And obviously this is coming out on the uh, PS4, Xbox One and PC. So finally, you'll be able to play Micro Machines, like a modern version of it, online with like anyone anywhere in the world, which has uh, always been a dream of mine, actually, to be able to <laughs> yeah. sit down and play Micro Machines around the world. Dude, I'm going to spend so much time on this game when it comes out. And, and they're saying, you know, it's going to be a budget release as yeah. well. So it's going to be £20 and it's coming out for the Xbox One, PS4 and PC. So, you know, it's going to be a great load of titles. I'm definitely going to get it on the PC and uh, be playing Dan all the time. Oh, this looks does look amazing. I've yeah. got to say, you know, there are some, you know, franchises from your childhood when they get updated, you're always a bit like, hmm. But when I watch this, I mean, no doubts in my mind, this is going to be absolutely epic. And, so. and with Stuart Campbell behind it as yeah. well, it really gives it some credentials, you know, in, in our mind. Absolutely, you know, being a guy who was involved in like you know these classic games first time round, he's obviously got you'd imagine quite a high threshold for quality as well. So, 
Yeah. He, he was a games reviewer. He never went easy on games back in uh, Amiga Power. No, yeah, so. So. <laughs> you think if anyone's going to, you know, make sure the game's good, it's Stuart. So uh, if you want to see the trailer, actually, we'll put that on our Facebook page and also in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, when you think of video games like, you know, Doom or Duke Nukem 3D, for example, these are games that have been, you know, around for like, 20 years now at least. Yeah, Mortal Kombat as well and all the kind of beat-em-ups. A lot of the time you'll, you'll play a game like right through, but you won't think about certain things in there that might help you out, like sound effects or maybe just like, you know, certain doors opening and hearing that kind of thing or maybe vibrations. But could you ever imagine playing something like Doom without looking at the screen? Well, there's a guy and he does and he's got an amazing little documentary about it. It's called Gaming Through New Eyes. It's a short documentary and it's it's won lots of prizes actually um, worldwide. And this is on Kotaku. And they're basically saying he started playing Mortal Kombat originally. This guy's completely blind. And he'd get the moves and he'd kind of get the feel of the sound and, it, and let's just play the clip and you'll kind of hear what he's talking about. Okay, this is a little clip from the uh, middle. It's like a 90-minute video, um, about halfway through. This is a section where he's, he's playing Doom. And bear in mind, this guy was born with a condition that means he's got no eyeballs, so he can't see a thing. Like the old classics, Doom and Duke Nukem, because I love the sound effects of the monsters, and I also enjoyed seeing how many monsters I can kill with in one shot with different weapons. Because I'm blind, I can't access all the health packs and all the armor. So I use God mode so that I can actually enjoy the maps. I also use a cheat where I can go through the walls because I can't find all the keys to the doors. And because I can't complete all maps, I also use a level select cheat as well. What really does make you think is Every kind of audio cue in these games is so important to how he plays them. And often audio, I mean, we've done shows about music and that kind of stuff yeah. before, but it's often kind of forgotten. I mean, people always talk about old graphics and that kind of thing. But even like, you know, sound effects on a menu when you're selecting something and you press the down cursor. To yeah, him, have it, having different noises for each individual part. And, you mm -hmm. know, having physical controls as well, because, you know, a lot of the tablet stuff, you, you may not be able to do that if you can't actually see where the inputs are. But, you know, holding a a joypad or having your keyboard and mouse could be really good. But also he's saying, you know, the sense of achievement that he gets from this. He spent eight weeks trying to beat one of the bosses in FFX. And that's amazing. Once he did that, he was, you know, over the moon. Right? Well, I'm looking at, you know, he, he plays doing better than me, to be fair. It's like, you know, <laughs> it, it's amazing that he manages to do this. I, what an achievement. It just makes you think that maybe, you know, more game developers should maybe think about those with kind of, you know, accessibility kind of needs or the fact that I imagine a lot of developers looked at that and they thought they just throw sound effects in and stuff because it's just part of the game but it really means you know this is the only way that he sees these games well well a lot of the older games kind of were a lot more usable by people with accessibility problems and mm. we've talked about this previously on the show how like older computer systems would actually support people a lot more than they do nowadays and it's quite sad actually because they have so much new technology and ability to help people and make custom controllers and stuff. And it's mm -hmm. all really kind of just built for people 
with all the senses. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's like, you know, this documentary is definitely worth a watch because, again, it's like, like you said, it's it's seeing a different angle of these games that kind of you thought you knew inside out and just seeing how someone plays them so differently to how we do is, uh, I think, a huge achievement. So if you want to watch our video, we'll put it in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, this is quite an interesting list on Lifehacker because we've got loads of old consoles and computers and stuff lying around, Ravi, and cupboards and everywhere we can fit oh, them in our God. houses. I'm constantly trying to fix them and breathe new life into these <laughs> machines. That's all I do. Well, this is a list on Lifehacker. Top 10 ways to breathe new life into an old gaming console. Now, some of these are quite common sense, you'd imagine, but it's good to be reminded of them now and then. The first one on the list is, make sure you have it set up in the best way possible. And the show, a really good example here. And this is someone with an Xbox 360 that is notoriously a system that is, you know, prone to overheating. And they've got like a, a Sky satellite box perched <laughs> on top of it and like a DVD player on top of that as well. Blocking the air vents and stuff like that is never a good idea. So it's, um, it's worth having them all set up nice and proper. But also, they mentioned stuff like, you know, taking apart the controllers and cleaning up like those sticky, grimy thumbsticks and buttons yeah. that stick down and that kind of thing. But also, I think, I think that making sure it's set up in the best way possible also would be like the video, video output. So like, Joe, we went round to your house and you had aerial plugs on everything and you're trying to tune in your TVs. RF, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, Joe, yeah. come on, Joe. <laughs> yeah, and we're saying, look, you can get an adapter for this and have it coming straight out RGB looking beautiful. And a lot of people haven't done that, like Dreamcasts. Mm. They've got some amazing adapters. So you can get up to like... I think 480i. Yeah, VGA output, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's supported by a lot of games. So, you know, I think it's really important to have the best quality display. Well, even on PlayStation 2 and original Xbox, you can use component cables. Original Xbox can do like 720p. Yeah. <laughs> so it's nuts, you know what I mean? So that is a really good point, you know, getting cables. Because, I mean, for most systems, you can get good quality video cables off eBay for like tenner. Not very much, unless you want one from GameCube. For some reason, they're really expensive if you want, like, you know, component for them. Uh, the next one is... Ditch the new release train and clear out that last-gen backlog. Now, this is really true because, especially now, where we're getting to, uh, you know, the stage where, you know, the current-gen consoles have been out for a few years now, they're kind of mm. even getting a refresh. But if you go to sh shops like CEX and that kind of thing, you can buy Xbox 360 and uh, PlayStation 3 games for, like, £5. Yeah, yeah, and you can get some really good titles. It's just that there's so many of them that yeah. you, you need to know what you're looking for. But also, you could have missed a hell of a lot of good ones. So. yeah. Well, I was at um, you know, Revival a couple of weeks ago, and there, I mean, a lot of stores were selling PS2 games off. There was actually one guy in the middle who kind of had a bit of a fire sale on the Saturday, yeah. and he said, right, you know, for now, everything's a pound. Later on, we went back, and he had a 10 pence box, which is full of PlayStation 2 titles. Oh, wow. And, you know, there was some crap there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Samantha actually bought a few of them. She bought Scooby-Doo. Oh, cool. Uh, one called Sitting Duck that I'd never heard of before. Never that heard looked, of that. Looked no. a bit like an open world simulator with a duck. So. <laughs> but for 10 pence, you know, you might yeah. find a hidden gem in there. You imagine in 10, 20 years' time, PS2 games are probably going to be worth quite a lot more. Mm. So it is a good time to get caught up on those games that you maybe missed from the last gen. The next one is use it as a dedicated media center or set-top box. Now, obviously, Cody was originally on the Xbox, wasn't it? XBMC? Xbox Media Center, yeah, I remember that. That was one of the first versions and kind of you could, yeah, watch old MP3s and old MP4s on there. It was really good fun. Um, but yeah, you can kind of convert something new. But actually, I don't think this one's that relevant because a lot of consoles now 
our media centers. Yeah, yeah, we got a billion. But I mean, you know, well, I've actually thought this because I, I set like a Cody box up in my bedroom and I went through, originally an Apple TV that wouldn't stream all my stuff. I bought like a, a Roku and again, mm. that was a bit slow and that. And originally I thought, why don't I just put an Xbox 360 in there? Because it's got like Netflix and everything on it. Yeah, and yeah. like you can get them for like 70 quid. The only problem is the noise. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I've got this one called BB2 Pro, which is uh, 60 quid and it's eight cores. Okay. <laughs> and does like 4K content and everything, and that's just a little Android box. Fantastic. I mean, yeah, it's probably not worth buying one outright, but if you've got like, you know, maybe a PS3 in the cupboard that's not doing anything, you know, you can do YouTube, Netflix, oh, totally. iPlayer, and all that's on there as well. So it's a good way I to could put RetroArch on that as well and uh, play some old games. Well, the next one is actually saying install new firmware. Now, you know, the original Xbox, I've got one that's got CoinOp 7 on there, which is like every arcade game you can ever imagine. Wow. And it plays them all amazingly. And, that, and that's just through a, a strange firmware update. And then you can install all of these Media Center and other stuff on there. Uh, kind of following on from that, turn it into an arcade cabinet. Yeah, you can turn it into an old school gaming cab but also you could probably hook it up to a crt tv and have it in there with the scan lines you know go old school i've seen those um giant game controllers that you can get for arcade cabinets and then wire them all up to your machine and you've got you know joystick and proper fire buttons that's the thing i mean because a lot of these kind of older systems they are powerful enough to emulate old arcade machines but also they've got the standard def outputs so you don't have to use hdmi you can actually hook them up to a crt like you said and, um, you know, a friend of mine's actually got, a, like, a driving rig all powered by an Xbox 360. You know, and he's got, like, an arcade wheel and, like, it's in, like, an arcade box. In his living room, is it? Uh, kind of in his man den upstairs, but I think he'd like <laughs> it in the living room if he had a chance. <laughs> uh, set up an arcade room with stations for your old consoles. Now, uh, um, our buddy Marvin actually came to visit us in Nottingham, didn't he, the other week? Oh, yeah, that was really nice. Came all the way over from the Netherlands. Yeah, and he was, he was doing a little pickup over in Birmingham. But he, he picks up kind of these like kind of retro stuff all the time. We tried to get out of him exactly where he finds this stuff, but we didn't quite get the full story, I don't no, think. No, no, he just pulled up to my house with a van and I opened the boot and it was like, oh, God, 40 boxes in there. God, <laughs> Apple Lisa, there was quite a few um, nice things in there. Well, some stuff he gets, I actually saw he had the original PlayStation 2, you know, cabinets you used to see, like in-store displays. Oh, like the vendor display booths, yeah. I think independent shops are probably more likely to maybe have them still out the back or, you know, yeah. in storage. <laughs> that might sell them to you know or maybe you'll find them in like you know junk shops or whatever but setting those up in your retro gaming room always looks incredibly cool i think doesn't it and number four on the list use the parts for other projects now i never really advocate you know ripping apart a console that was working but if you got a broken one hey you ripped my laser out of the um, playstation did yes yeah, so. that was one of the small playstations to make an original fat playstation one work ravi yeah that, that was a worthwhile that was a worthwhile sacrifice <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was or you could just stuff a raspberry pi in the case yeah you true. got a broken yeah. machine uh if you are ben heck you can make it into a portable yeah I, i'm i'm attempting a portable amiga 600 but i don't think it's going to happen i'm hoping that ben just does it and i don't have to <laughs> but if you've got skills i mean having like an xbox 360 like you know laptop <laughs> almost oh, yeah pretty cool. that's pretty cool well even those playstation ones you're on about they were little mm. portable ones you yeah. could just probably shove a lithium-ion battery on there and have the PS1 screen. You could, yeah, you could buy a screen for it, couldn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah a little portable PlayStation there. Uh, get most of the money back if you do sell it. Now, this kind of depends on what kind of system you've got, I think. On timing. Yeah. That's the key. If yeah. you sell, like, you know, a Super Nintendo, you probably get back what you paid for it now. Yeah. If you sell an Xbox 360, probably not. Yeah, probably get about £12 nowadays. <laughs> yeah, don't sell them in CEX. Yeah. So if you want to check out this full list, it's worth a read. We'll put that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, do you remember Parappa the Rapper? 
kick punch it's all in the mind yeah i remember that you played it before <laughs> oh yeah I, I still know all the lyrics i remember my brother having that when we first got a playstation probably one of the first ps1 games i ever played Rapper the rapper yeah it was wicked I, it was like a beat game but before guitar hero wasn't it so you were kind of just hitting on the beat and trying to get the timing right and if you didn't you get scolded by an onion yeah, onion head dude. Yeah, yeah. A bit weird, <laughs> yeah. It was a very surreal game, actually, wasn't it? Looking back, yeah, because it was like this two D looking graphics, and then they kind of turn. And yeah, it, it'd like, be like cardboard, wouldn't it? Paper cutouts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very cool. But again, I mean, it was kind of like I think that kind of era of gaming. You know, it was before like all the massive AAA studios got involved, and mm. it probably was a bit more experimental. I mean, you kind of get that again with the indie scene now, but for years you didn't. Yeah, it kind of seemed like an indie game, actually. You're right. Well, now there is a spiritual successor to Parappa the Rapper. Oh, cool. <laughs> and this is called Project Rap Rabbit. Oh, Rap Rabbit. So what was Prapper? I'm not sure even what kind of creature he was, but this guy's <laughs> a... Dog gossip. Yeah. <laughs> no idea what he was, actually. I'm sure someone will tell us on, uh, on Twitter. They normally do. Yeah. Uh, but this is um, a new game that's coming out, and apparently it kind of plays quite like Parappa the Rapper. Insofar as, you know, like you said, it's kind of like hitting the buttons in time to the music and the lyrics and all that kind of thing as well. But this is just launched on Kickstarter, and it's going to be released on the PlayStation 4 and the PC initially. Now, they're looking to raise about $1.1 million, which some people have been saying that's quite a lot of money for it. But looking at this, this is like, you know, pretty much a full-on modern generation game. You know what I mean? It's uh, it's not like a, a small, like, couple of level indie game. It's actually a full-on commercial release. I think if if they get it out, if they get word out enough, they will get it because there's been much, much bigger projects on a, you know, Kickstarter. Exactly. Well, this is running on Kickstarter at the moment and it's actually doing really well at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's still got 28 days to go at the time of recording this and thereafter, I mean, just to get this out the door um, in terms of pounds, £855,000 and bearing in mind this has only been running a couple of days, it's already raised 115000 and by the time this episode comes out, it's probably going to be a lot more. But I think the thing is, with this, I mean, anyone who really wants to see this game should back these projects. Because we've seen them in the past where they, they kind of come and go, and that's, mm. you know, they never see the light of day. But, I mean, there are some kind of stretch goals in here as well. Now, initially, they're saying it's only going to come out on the PS4 and their PC. I'm not exactly sure why an Xbox One version is not included in that, because it normally would be, I think, wouldn't you? Mm. But they reckon if they get to 1.5 million, there's going to be a Nintendo Switch edition as well. Maybe they have to pay some kind of licensing or something to get onto the Switch. Or Xbox, yeah, the Switch. So. Well, the Switch, you know, you need like a, a dev kit for it, um, mm. which, you know, I imagine <laughs> a million pounds would probably cover one of those. Uh, but I think it's really cool to see that kind of game coming back and also in such a big way as well. Yeah, I know. It looks great. These kind of rap rhythmic beat games. Yeah, they're, they're, they're a, lost, a lost genre. Well, let's see a little bit of the music on it. Oh, that's very proper style. Yeah, it does sound old school, doesn't it? Yeah. And yeah, I remember the beats were always really cool on proper as well. Yeah, you'd sometimes just listen to the music on that yeah, game, yeah. Yeah. just to put it on to hear the tunes. And it was always like little break beats, wasn't it? Hip-hop style kind of break. He was a cool guy, wasn't yeah, he? And, yeah, you know, yeah, Rapper cool. Rapper looks pretty good as well, actually, I've got to say. And it's good to see, you know, this is going to kind of introduce that style of game to like a new generation of gamers as well. So, Hopefully, yeah. Yeah, if you want to check out the trailer and back the Kickstarter, we'll put that in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. Right then, thank you for checking out episode number 73. Uh, the podcast will be out again next Friday. Your little treat before the weekend. Please do keep your reviews coming in on iTunes. 
your thumbs up on YouTube, your comments. Your tweets. Yeah, well, we are on, obviously, all of your social media networks. We always appreciate a follow. You can find all our links at theretrohour.com. And let's get into this week's special guest, all about the Centre for Computing History in Cambridge with Jeremy Thackeray. And we'll see you next week. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it's time to welcome this week's very special guest, Jeremy Thackeray from the Centre for Computing History. Welcome to the show. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. No problem. Well, now, what is it you actually do at the, at the centre? Okay, so I'm the assistant curator at the museum. I'd say half of my job is to do with trying to manage our collection. We've got an awful lot of stuff. So it's uh, kind of getting the museum to the point where we're um, sort of competing with longer, well-established museums and so on. Um, but then the other half of it is, because we're a small team, we all pitch in with just about everything. So, yeah, managing... Uh, the events that we do, so gaming nights and so on. Um, yeah, just dealing with visitors all the time and uh, and doing podcasts every now and then. So, um, so yeah, yeah, it's a pretty varied job. Well, what's kind of your background then? Why did you start with computers? What what about your own personal interest? It was a bit of a s- amazing job opportunity for me. This one because um, I I started out when I was trying to find something to do with myself. Actually, doing a bit of um, video game journalism online. I did lots of reviews and things like that for um, for various websites. And it never quite took off in a way that I was sort of satisfied with. And one of my other interests was museums and heritage. So I did some volunteering at some much more typical museums um, and did a qualification in it. And then a job came up which combined computing, technology, gaming and museums. You don't see those very often. Um, and uh, yeah, and that's how I ended up where I am today. Well, uh, how did the idea of the centre start? It was about, I think we're just over 10 years old now in terms of when the whole project got going. Um, We started out of a private collection about 10 years ago. Uh, The director of the museum isn't a museum's person by trade. He's a software developer um, and he was a collector like any other. And as so often happens with um, collections, at some point the collector has to decide what to do when it gets pretty big um, and uh, some people decide to downsize to get out of the game um, but he decided to uh, be ambitious and try and make it into a public collection and um, since then we've had done various different things um, there was a period where it was kind of just taking machines out to special events and doing all sorts of other things but about a little bit under four years ago now we uh, managed to get our first proper home base in Cambridge and uh, yeah now we've got our own building for exhibits we're able to collect a lot more stuff and um yeah we're well on the way to being a, a pretty established part of of the museum world especially in cambridge well you made an interesting point there about you know kind of collecting being addictive i mean <laughs> ravi and i can vouch for that you know we, yeah. we keep buying more systems yeah. all the time i mean are you a collector yourself do you have a personal collection at home probably well i've got a few it's it's mostly just uh, games and software titles and a few other things um i my my era where i was really growing up and gaming for first time was kind of mid to late 90s mm-hmm. i was a big fan of um, rpgs and um i do quite like a big boxed copy of Baldur's gate that i've got um here um which is yeah one of one of the things i'm really happy to have with all the right innards and inserts inside it and all the different you know five cds to play the thing and all the maps and all the shortcut guides on paper and the big manuals and uh, yeah that's one of the things we actually do at the museum is we're, there are lots of projects out there preserving code, uh, you know, taking source code off um, off tapes and preserving that. But there's also something about having the product. We do try and we collect the physical item as well. So 
the the product of the box with with all the right inserts and manuals just as you would have got it when you bought it off the shop shelf in in the 80s or the 90s or the 70s for um, for some of the oldest stuff that we've got yeah do you get um donations and if you do do they kind of affect the way you're going to create something like oh we've suddenly got a load of you know commodore stuff or we've suddenly got a load of acorn stuff they can do yeah we've got to the point now where we've we've gotten Mo well, we have we tend to have multiple copies of most of the sort of common machines of um, of the home computing era. So, Acorn and Sinclair naturally we have a lot of that sort of stuff because they were they were Cambridge based. So so much there are so many of those machines still in people's attics and garages that have been just sat there for the last thirty years in this part of the country, and um, we happen to be a good nearby place to take it to. But we do occasionally have some moments, yeah, where we we get a, a fantastic offer out of the blue, and um, and we decide to build a. A display around that particular item it doesn't tend to be the, the kind of home computers anymore it tends to be the weirder rarer stuff um someone donated a it was a analog computer from a um supposedly from a lancaster bomber in the second world war which would have been used for um yeah for targeting bombing runs essentially yeah. and we we got you know we've when we've been dealing with 80s micros and all this consumer uh merchandise so much to get an object like that was absolutely fantastic. So we're going to try and build that into our displays as well. Um, but on the, the idea of uh, donations generally, yeah, the museum really has, we've run off donations. There are a few things which where we've specifically gone out and sought them out and made some purchases. But for the most part, we, um, we rely on what people have brought to us over the years. Do you ever get um, bogged down with kind of donations, you know, repairing it and processing it and getting it ready for the museum? Oh yes, absolutely. Um, one of the the trickiest things we've found in the last few years actually is making that transition from we'll take absolutely anything and we'll we'll dig through it and we'll find all the good stuff that we want for the collection to picking and choosing before they even bring it to the museum because um, storage now has become uh, a a really tricky question for us and we've expanded recently. We've got more storage buildings. It's always a question for every museum really uh, storage i've never worked in one where everyone is happy with the amount of spare room they've got to put stuff in so yeah it does take a lot of time to do it but that's that's part of what you do in heritage you're not just collecting these things to to have them and to keep them in the back room locked away it's you're having them to to really get them back out there and show them to people so you need to preserve them properly keep them properly catalogued and and it adds up but it is all worth it in the end Ravi made an interesting point there, actually, about, you know, like the maintenance of these machines. I imagine especially with the more rare things, I mean, you know, tracking down the source code for like a Lancaster bomber on board computer must be, you know, <laughs> yeah. how do you find this stuff? <laughs> yeah, do you have to get yeah. any uh, specialists in or anything? We have them from every now and then, yeah. Once, um, I mean, once computer architecture hits the kind of home computer era, so once we get to the 80s, it, well, it becomes a bit more standardised, so you don't necessarily, for lots of the common home machines, have to have an expert on each individual one. But that said, when those guys do come, come along who have a real intense interest in particular types of machines, they can make them do amazing new things. It's one thing getting, I don't know, when a BBC Micro pops its capacitors, it's one thing swapping those around. But last week we had a big Acorn event and you should see what some of the guys there are able to do with these, with a BBC Micro or with any of the Acorn range. Same for any of the home computers or games consoles of that era. If you have someone who really knows their stuff, they can bring these objects to life in a way that most kind of technicians really can't. But, um, but we are lucky at the museum. We've got a, a very good team of, of volunteers who are there all hours of the day and night. During the day, they'll be 
sticking screwdrivers and things and fixing machines up for us and in the evening they'll be helping to run our our events so um yeah they're a terrific bunch we really couldn't do without them well let's talk a bit about cambridge because i mean really you know back in the 80s it was kind of like the you know the silicon valley of britain really wasn't it it was you yeah. know with companies like acorn and sinclair and a lot of people's attention would have been drawn to it with the uh micro men movie a few years ago as well obviously yeah. um i mean yeah. do, do you kind of get you know is it much of a connection um between like you know people who used to work at these companies that's maybe pop in from time to time or there is absolutely i mean the the main legacy of that era now is um is arm in cambridge who spun out of acorn um, we still get plenty of of guys coming in from from there having a look around the place and then um, they're one of our sponsors as well actually so fancy uh, people from there coming in we get people who will appear completely innocuous when they walk in just like any other visitor and then they'll just name drop such life sinclair or um any of the other famous figures from that era and say oh yeah i worked with them back in the day and it's terrific to see their stuff um on display again but yeah it really has has come to light again I mean, you talk about Microman. It was uh, fun hearing about that because we actually supplied all the all the gear for for that um, for that film. Oh wow! Um, so um, yeah, in in one of the scenes, um, our director is in there playing a playing one of the Acorn developers in the background. <laughs> uh, so I think that was a dream come true for him, really. So what's really the goal of the centre then? What are your aims? Um, the aim is to be kind of a a national centre. For, for computing and, and the history of computing, really. And there are plenty of similar museums cropping up um, around the country at the moment. I think the initial aim of all of them is often just to, we have all this great old stuff, we're going to show it off to people. That's how so many museums start, and ours was no different. But kind of the grand ambitions, if you like, are to be a genuine centre for research into the history of computing. We've, I hope in future that we branch out more into, into preserving code as well into actually into because there, there are lots of mainstream museums actually who are now collecting source code um trying to get it direct from developers to help preserve this stuff for the future so that's one of the things we'd love to do and um and yeah we're just looking to increase the collection increase the uh, the number of visitors coming in through the door all the time as well but yeah so lots of grand ambitions definitely what's the um kind of age range that you get there the average age or is um, it just a big mix there's, it is pretty mixed, actually. Yeah, I'd say we, I mean, we during the week we have a lot of school groups coming in, um, and the typical ages for those are kind of uh, key stage two to key stage three. So about eight or nine years old up to kind of um, fifteen or sixteen is kind of our our main range for schools. Um, but in terms of general visitors, um, we tend to get a lot of families coming in um, because. We tell the history at the museum, but it's been one of our guiding principles from the start that we try to have as much of the stuff switched on as possible for users, for visitors, just to have a go with, whether that's games consoles or micros or um, or some of the more serious stuff as well. And that does go down well with the family audience um, because we often get lots of parents who are you know growing up um, in in the seventies or the eighties, and they can they can kind of do our job for us in many ways when they're talking to their kids they can interpret all of these objects they can say to them this is what this was for i used one of these when i was your age um so you do get a really nice atmosphere and with all the families but um but yeah we get lots of um quite a lot of uh, of older visitors coming in as well often who will have been involved in the industry and um, and plenty more besides as well so it's a real mix yeah well what can people expect when they visit the museum then what kind of stuff have you got on display the broad part of the history of the museum tends to cover the home computing era. We do have stuff that predates that. We go back to kind of the 1960s and 1950s with our collections. Um, so we can demonstrate 
um, punch tape running through 1960s machines and so on. Uh, then we have a whole area full of games consoles going from Pong consoles in the 70s. Um, I think the last one on our on our display is the GameCube at the moment. Um, maybe in a few years' time, we'll add the next generation of consoles onto that list. Um, and then we've got 80s micros as well. Uh, so everything from uh, Acorn Atoms and Electrons up to sort of the Amiga era and later PCs as well. So there's there's all sorts to come and use, really. Um, and you can come along just to have a play with things, to play all the games and play on the arcade machines we've got. Uh, we, we have coding worksheets to help people who've never done any coding before to get a little start on that. And um, probably the display we're most proud of actually recently is, um, or newest object, is a machine called the Mega Processor, which you may well have heard of. It's become a bit of a, it's been doing the rounds on the internet. Um, it's a homebrew project here in Cambridge. One, di one person decided to build a processor at home on a huge scale. It's um, 10 meters long, two meters tall, um, and it basically blows up the processors going on inside a CPU on an enormous scale with loads of blinking LEDs. And uh, it's a terrific way of showing just what's going on, just how much power there is in any old common smartphone, tablet or um, or laptop today. And that was all hand-built, wasn't it, that mega processor? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a... <laughs> It's a mad project. It's an extraordinary thing. Um, you can only give credit to James who built it. But um, yeah, all built by hand. I think my favorite stat is um, there's something like a quarter of a million individual solder joints on the oh. machine. So uh, yeah, it's, it's an insane creation. And now it sits in our front room. It's one of the first things you see when you come in. Well, in terms of like, you know, other systems that you've got, I mean, I imagine they come from various sources, but I mean, where do you tend to get your machines and your software from then? As, as I say, for the most part, it's just people have them still lying around in, in attics and in garages. And um, it's it's so common that people come to us and say, I'm, I'm moving out or I'm downsizing and I've found these things. Do you want them? If not, then um, I'm going to have to chuck them in the skip, really. Um, I mean, we are a museum. We're preserving this stuff for the future. But equally, we're not dealing with Ming vases or, or old master paintings. We're dealing with consumer technology. There's a lot of it around. The, the challenge isn't so much preserving each last individual object. It's conveying to future generations what all of this, what this stuff was for. So, so yeah, that is, that's really what we try and do. But um, yeah, donations come from, from everywhere really, but most often it's just everyday people who've bought a home computer 30 years ago and, um, and it's been gathering dust for, for 20 years. Um, so yeah, that's where we tend to get most of our stuff from. What kind of rare systems have you got there? Because I did read that you guys have got, is it the, the only working, or it may not be working anymore, um, Acorn Phoebe? We did have the only working Acorn Phoebe, yes, and then it stopped working. <laughs> We're trying to get that one fixed at the moment. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, but we've got, we've got plenty of other stuff as well, um, quite good things in, in the collection. And I think one of the favourites on, on gaming nights, obviously, is things like um, Virtual Boys often are very well received by, by visitors, especially with VR having such a comeback in the last few years, mm. explaining to young kids that this is nothing new is often quite fun when you bring out the virtual boy and show them something like that. But um, I suppose at the moment we're not so much focusing on the rarer sort of home computers, um, although they are, they are great to have. What we really want to try and find now is weird computing ephemera, so strange different objects rather than kind of core systems and so on um, we'd really love to have those objects which are which tell different stories about the history of computing so um, things that we're, what we've tried to do over the years actually is um, progress from we, we do like telling the technical stories of things how the technology has changed but also we want to try and tell how 
computers have impacted on our lives. So we're trying to collect more objects that um, that really tell that story. I think one of the interesting things that came through recently was um, some very, very early bank cards from the 1960s. I mean, if you think about how computers have revolutionized the way we, we handle our money, um, that's kind of a genesis in many ways, having something like this piece of paper with some holes punched in it, and that's your bank card from the 1960s. So, um, so yeah, we have plenty of, of those rare systems which have kind of taken on a lot of prominence in the retro community. Um, and we've got, we're very, very happy to show all that stuff up at the museum, but we do love showing things that people have never thought of before as well, like like those bank cards, like the computer from the Lancaster bomber and like all sorts of stuff besides, as well as things like the Phoebe that you mentioned, yeah. I think I actually saw the Phoebe, at, um, it was called Silicon Dreams, uh, a festival ages ago. I don't know if it was you guys, um, it must have been, <laughs> but um, it's a yeah. beautiful machine. Um, yellow case. Of, yeah. Yellow case, yeah. later development for Acorn, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah, it was um, essentially the RISC PC2 um, was the Phoebe and um, they, it was just almost ready to roll when, um, when Acorn decided that home computer production was no longer for them. Um, and that's, yeah, when when they rebranded and uh, and Acorn as we as we knew it was no more really so um yeah it's one of those strange machines that almost made it out and has now taken on a wholly different kind of uh, wholly different story because it never quite made it to market yeah i remember them selling like cuz you're right it was that close to being released that actually mm. made all the cases and there were you know you could buy like hundreds of phoebe cases on ebay for several years yeah it was quite funny actually last last week we held a big acorn event and um I remember walking in through the through the doors of the museum to start work in the morning, and um, and there was a Phoebe just sat there at the front desk. And part of me was going, "Oh, is, is that there's another one? Has someone donated this?" <laughs> um, but it, it was just a case, um, not one of the guys that brought along. And ours, I was assured, was uh, elsewhere in the museum. So yeah, it is. It's it's got a very interesting history that object, but it's it's uh, it is a nice thing to look at. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the uh, the Acorn exhibition that you had. It was Acorn World, um, wasn't it? And I mean, obviously, I imagine you, you know you, you must be quite closely related to the the Acorn community. Then, being based in Cambridge, and I know you've even got like a have you got like an eighties classroom in the BBC Micros set up? We do, yeah. We we still do. Um, one of the workshops we run for schools is um, coding as it would have been done in in schools in nineteen eighty four. Oh, wow. um, we teach BBC Basic um, on the on the beeps, um, which is it's a great thing to do because even though the programming language might not be practically useful today, the the logic and the way of thinking in, in of thinking in that logical way is still taught brilliantly by it. It's still a great tool for, for teaching that way of thinking. Um, so yeah, we've got a lot of Acorn stuff here as well. Um, the event was was really good. We did it in conjunction with um, ABUG, the Acorn and BBC user group on the Stardot forums. Mm. And um, they came in, they took over our classroom and they they had all sorts of retro projects in there, all their homebrew things, which making Beebs do things that no one would have dreamt they could be able to do in the 80s. Um, and then we had a big history display as well with the Phoebe as well as lots of other uh, interesting objects as well. We recently acquired actually um, from Steve Ferber, who's one of his professor of computing at um, Manchester University now. He was one of the key designers on on the BBC Micro and of, of the arm chip. He is very kindly donated um what's essentially the prototype to the bbc micro it was his own home home built computer which was went on to become acorns proton 
Wow. Which then went on to become the BBC Micro. So it's kind of the prototype of the prototype, really. And we had that out on display as well. So, um, yeah, it was a really good event. Well, I think back to, you know, my school days, you know, with the the BBC Micros and the Aircon Archimedes. I remember using stuff like Logo and, you know, we had like a little robot turtle that you could control. And, you know, there were great machines for, you know, we we'd like robotic arms and that kind of thing as well. But they really kind of encourage yeah. learning those machines. Yeah, yeah, they really were. It's it's strange talking to visitors about um, about the change in education in computing because we talk so much about this 80s period where computers were the, the next big thing. They were going to change everyone's lives. The government came in and funded computing in a big way. Schools pushed coding. And by the time you get to to the 90s and later on when, well, there was no computing course. It was all IT. And it was mm-hmm. essentially how do you do word processing and how do you use a spreadsheet? Um, and there was nothing beyond that. If you wanted to do anything that involved coding, um, let alone hardware, then you'd be waiting until until you were 17 or 18 years old and you decided to take it up from that. So education has changed massively in the computing world. It's kind of gone back and forth from uh, purely um, software-based up to only using applications, and now it's come back to actually software and hardware again, which is it's fantastic to see. And I think anyone you know of, like uh, in the 30s and 40s, when they actually see a BBC Micro, because there were in every single school, and yeah, the Aircon Archimedes after that, I imagine it just kind of evokes memories that maybe they haven't thought of for years. Yeah, it really does. It's fascinating seeing kind of a, a sort of muscle memory reappearing when people come to the museum. They'll sit down in front of a keyboard that they won't have sat in front of for 30 years and suddenly little bits of code will come back to them. They'll find themselves typing um, 10 print hello world 20 go to 10 before they've even realised that they're doing it, um, which is, is really interesting to see. Um, but probably one of the comments we actually get most when people come into the 80s classroom is they'll say yeah it's great you've got lots of bbcs but there weren't nearly as many as this in my school because we have you know we'll have um, 15 or 16 of them in there when we've got a, a full school group um whereas in, in an 80s classroom you might be lucky if you had a if you had more than two or three in your school maybe I think in the late 80s, we had like four, I think, yeah. And like we used to lock them in an yeah. iron safe overnight. I, I, I used to set them up and then set them up in the mornings and stuff. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I think just having those exhibitions must be, it must take a lot of work as well. I mean, what are kind of the exhibitions you'd be most proud of then? Um, I think we're, we're really proud of that we do have the mega processor now in the front room. It's just such a fantastic tool for for education as well as just being really visually arresting when you walk in there's nothing like walking through the door and seeing a massive wall of 20,000 LEDs flashing at you um but um but yeah the Acorn World event last year was was really good to do um other fun ones we've done uh, we did one um at the beginning of last year yeah beginning of 2016 with Ashens yeah um he released um yeah uh, terrible old games you've probably never heard of um one of his kickstarted books and we we held an event with him uh, called terrible old games day where we were just celebrating these awful games and we got them out for people to actually play and experience so um that was a lot of fun but um but yeah we do all sorts of other events too um our retro gaming nights are probably the biggest event we do we open late and we just get out lots more games from our archive some of the rarer stuff too so, so yeah, we, we do lots of things that point towards the retro community and get them in, but we're also trying to do more events that get a, a kind of general audience into the museum as well, people who don't know much about technology or feel that it's not for them. We're trying to cover them with more exhibitions as well. So we've got upcoming exhibitions on cybersecurity, on um, women in computing, 
on uh, on various other topics as well. So yeah, we're really trying to broaden that audience. Yeah.、Uh, do you get any celebrity visitors, or maybe some unannounced celebrity visitors? <laughs> well, I'm not sure about celebrities, but every so often you'll see a a big shot in the computing world、uh, coming coming through the door, and we have to sort of go, oh, was was that? Yes, it was. Yeah, there、um, are celebrities. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Who have we had? And、uh, so Clive Sinclair came along came along to a Sinclair Day we did back in 2014. We've done interviews with them,、um, various people as well. Chris Curry, who's、um, obviously one of the founders of Acorn. Um, Eben Upson is、um, leading the Raspberry Pi Foundation at the moment. He actually came along to Acorn Day. It was fantastic. I was sat there at the front desk, and、uh, he comes in with、um, with a pram and sits down. And I had to sort of do a double take and go, "Yes, that is Eben Upson." <laughs> <laughs> um, just coming in like like any other visitor and、um, sitting down at the cafe and having a look at the exhibits. So,、um, so yeah, we do get we do get those from time to time, and we're doing more and more stuff with them.、Um, With YouTubers and people like that as well, so,、uh, so yeah, it's it's quite nice seeing who comes along. Well, your YouTube channel is really good, and I mean, we'll put we'll put a link in our show notes if people haven't checked it out before. I mean, I was watching your、uh, the interview you did with Evan actually on your channel, and it's really cool. He, he's sitting there with、uh, an Amiga six hundred, and he's talking about the background on that machine. Then he's got like the prototype documents for the original Raspberry Pi as well. Yeah, the video projects are something we try to.、Um, A lot of、um, about. I think the project ended last summer. Actually, we had money from、um, from the Heritage Lottery Fund for a specific video project to try and gather these interviews from from sort of the big names in computing in this in this part of the country.、Um, and it's a really interesting project to do, and and that's really helped us actually push our YouTube channel because a part of that that's what allowed us to acquire the high end、uh, cameras and the and the filming equipment that we've got now. So so yeah, we do enjoy making. Making the videos that we've got on there, we've got plenty of interviews. We've also got things with our volunteers, just sitting down and doing a doing a tear down of an old machine and chatting about it. And、uh, so there's plenty of stuff on there. Yeah. So what's a typical day like for you?、Uh, typical day for me. Well, I suppose、um, I imagine if there's a school group coming in. Yeah, we'll be coming in in the morning, setting up the right machines for them,、um, getting out all the tables and chairs for them to have their lunches. There's lots of mundane stuff as well. Um, but then, yeah, when a school group comes in, we'll do guided tours with them. So I'll take them through the history of computing from valve-based computers in in the 40s and 50s,、uh, all the way up to、um, to the smartphone revolution and and the future and where things might go.、Um, or if it's a weekend, then then it's a case of、uh, dealing with all the all the visitors that we have coming on the front desk and then diving into the archive to.、Um, To try and write some more documentation, we're trying to improve all the procedures that we're doing with, with,、um, with our collection to meet national standards. It's a big challenge for any new young museum like ourselves, but that's a big project that we've got at the moment. So, so yeah, there's lots of different things going on, but、um, yeah, it's never a dull day really. There's, there's always something new. There's always a different person to talk to coming into the museum. I imagine as well, you know, when when you're really interested in it, the hours must just like you know disappear. I do. You, do you put like a lot of extra time in you guys there? I imagine we do. Yeah, I mean, I, the people I can't praise enough, really. The volunteers.、Um, we have.、Uh, I think I mentioned a bit earlier on. We have、uh, retro gaming nights and family gaming nights where we're opening late, and、um, we do all sorts of other evening events too. And you'll often find that our volunteers are, are working at the museum on a Saturday from. Ten till midnight. That's ten a.m. to midnight.、Um, uh, running our events, and and they're not there to play on the games all the time and have a bit of a laugh. Although we do have a great laugh, they they come along to 
to repair stuff, to lift all the stuff, to take it back and forth from our archive, to to man the cafe, to explain all of these uh, these machines to our visitors. So yeah, we we really can't praise them enough. It's it's what any young museum has to has to do to get off the ground. There are so many volunteer-run museums out there, um, but yeah, I have to say that our, our guys are fantastic. The people that we have volunteering for us, they do such a good job. Well, you mentioned about the night you did with Ashens, where it was, you know, terrible old games. Um, I mean, are there any kind of unloved or less popular systems that you're a fan of? We did like a special on the Atari Jaguar the other week. I mean, you know, which I think some of them kind of unfairly get, you know, a bad reputation sometimes. Yeah, it does, doesn't it, the Jaguar? It's um, it's always fun um, when we do tours around that sort of area of the, area of the museum. You look at all these... Um, you know, nice ergonomic controllers that we've got today, and then you go back to something like the Jaguar and wonder how it ever got past any sort of <laughs> uh, QA department. It's it's amazing, really. Um, but um, but yeah, we we tend to try and have the systems out there that visitors will be most able to use. So we don't have things out there that are too obscure. But it is fun going up into the archive and getting out some of the um, the lesser known stuff and stuff that really wasn't a commercial success in its time. But it's it's amazing how many how many systems there are out there that were really interesting pieces of technology, um, perhaps ahead of their time in many ways, but that never never caught on, that we never had that commercial success. I mean, the, the Virtual Boy is a case in point, really. You'll get people saying, oh, they'll have just heard about it and assume that it, it won't, can't have been a very good machine. But then you sit down in front of it, and it's actually a really interesting experience to play on one of those things, mm. um, especially considering the technology of the time. So... Um, so yeah, it is it is really good fun to get out the things that that people have often thought are a bit rubbish, not very good, like like the Jaguar that you mentioned, and to kind of show them that no, these things they they do have plenty of redeeming features. Yeah, because I mean, for me, you know, I, I kind of collected the main systems, your Mega Drive, Super Nintendo, but then you know, I got quite interested in stuff like you know the CDI and the 3DO, and yeah. got you know, yeah. kind of bought those systems as well. And again, I mean, I think for me, it's it's quite a tragedy because you imagine like there was teams who went into work every single day to build these projects, and then they kind of got released and they they didn't meet expectations. So there's kind of that story behind it as well that must be quite interesting to explore. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the ones I I remember quite well is um. The the Jupiter Ace is has a really fun story behind it. The fact that it was, it, and it's it's so valuable these days. This little microcomputer. It's one of the sort of most desired micros of that era, really, by collectors. But but in terms of its success at the time, it it, it crashed and burned really because um, even though it was a a very interesting little machine, it came with a programming language that nobody used. Um, so, so yeah, it's really interesting pulling those stories out and. And thinking about, I mean, it's I mentioned before, we try not just to cover the, the technological development, but all there's also the social development of computing. And and part of that is this this kind of life that a lot of people who are in that business have gotten used to, which is you work for a startup, you see whether it succeeds. Quite a lot of the time it won't do. You move on to another startup and see how that goes. That's That's a way of life, really, that's become quite common in the computing world. So it's interesting to explore those those social stories as well. It's it's very interesting that you mentioned kind of old machines not, you know, people thinking that they were rubbish and they didn't actually do a good job. I found that a lot of the old VR and stuff doesn't make me feel sick, but the modern stuff really does. So, you know. Yeah, yeah. no, it's definitely true. Hmm. Uh, why do you think retro gaming and computing's kind of become so popular in recent years? Well, 
but obviously a major part of it is down to the fact that that's that's people's childhood that's what they grew up with it's an ingrained part of of the way they are um so, so there's something about sitting down in front of one of these old systems and and letting the memories come back but that doesn't quite explain why it's kicked on in such a big way in recent years or why um why people of well we get for instance teenagers who have started retro collections it's not from their childhood stuff from the 80s and 90s it's um stuff from before they were born why are they getting interested in it and it is it is interesting seeing those stories seeing why people get fascinated by these things but um i think it's in it's part of a kind of broader idea of the fact that computing is getting to that point now where or home computing at least where it's it's not new anymore in it is still in, in historical terms a very very recent development you know home home computing only kicks in really in the in the late 70s and the 80s but now it's getting to the point where the medium is i mean take from from gaming for example the gaming has now gone to the point where uh retro style graphics are no longer seen as something of the past They're, it's seen as a legitimate choice uh, an art choice for your game um so I think the medium's now gotten older, old enough for us to look back fondly and with nostalgia, but also critically as well, and to really see what lessons we can take from these objects from the past. So I think that might be one reason why why thing why retro computing has become even more popular in recent years. But but so much of it is still just down to nostalgia. I often say when people come to the museum, we're half about education and teaching people about the past, just like any museum but also half of it is nostalgia as well, just coming in and seeing the things from your childhood up and running again. Yeah, I was reading like an article the other day about retro gaming and, uh, you know, a developer was talking about how when, you know, he shows like the old games. And it's probably the same with music as well, you know, like if you go to a concert and like an old song comes on, all the audience applaud, but they're not really applauding the song, they're applauding a younger version of themselves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's just a nostalgia kick really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I see that so many times. We get people who come in and they'll request certain games from our archive. And there's something interesting about seeing them play it because a lot of the time they'll, they'll absolutely love playing with it. But also there is a, you do get from a lot of people the sense that, okay, 20 years on, it's still great, but it's, it's not the most amazing thing ever anymore. It's still fantastic, but it's a firm part of my childhood. And now there are other interesting new things. So, but yeah, there's, there's an awful lot of nostalgia to it. Yeah. What depresses me as well when I play old games from when I was a kid is like, you know, I used to be able to complete them in like an afternoon and now I can't even get past the first Difficulty level. Difficulty factor, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, absolutely. No, I remember sitting down for 10-hour sessions to finish the latest game. But yeah, just no time for that anymore. <laughs> well, what do you think of modern retro developments like the Spectrum Next? Oh, well, I suppose the one that's done most successfully in the last few years is, is the NES Mini. Um, I think that was probably the way to do it, really. But Nintendo are very well placed to do that. Uh, you know, very well established company with very good management of their back catalogue. Doing it for 80s micros is, as we've seen with, with the various Spectrum projects that have been going on, is a pretty difficult thing to do. So I think, in principle, if you could get a product like that up and running and with a vast collection of games on it, it would be a fantastic thing to have. Um, it's just that the industry at that time was so so varied there's so many copyright issues and it was the whole industry was kind of flying by the seat of its pants at that time so it's no wonder that resurrecting things in a full and complete way is, is a difficult thing to do um so yeah i'd love to see products like that that really did bring back the experience but um it is difficult to get them off the ground as we've seen 
I've watched YouTube and like a friend of our show, um, Nostalgia Nerd Peter. I know he was one of the few people who've been lucky enough to get into your uh, secret upstairs and back room areas. I mean, have you got much in the collection that's not on display then? Uh, There's an awful lot that's not on display, yes. I think probably about 5% of the collection is on display. Wow. Uh, Vast amounts in the background, yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah, in in our upstairs archive, which some people have been to, yeah, we've got some... I think it's something like nearly 200 boxes of software now. Um, and in that probably amounts to about eight or 9,000 games. Uh, I think some, there's several thousand magazines, several thousand books. In terms of pure computer hardware, we've cleared a 1,000 there. And that includes everything from a, a Spectrum to a, a giant mainframe unit um, or even something like the mega processor. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, there's an awful lot that... We could display if we had both the manpower and and the space to put it out. Give us give us ten or twenty years, we'll be in a much bigger premises and we'll have an awful lot more on display. <laughs> like an aircraft hangar or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that'll do. <laughs> Are there kind of any dream systems or software you want to get your hands on? Well, the one we always joke about is an Apple one. <laughs> you know, if anybody's anybody listening has a, a few hundred thousand pounds to to donate to the museum, then we'll go out and hunt one down. I saw one um, sold recently for a, uh, an astonishing amount. You know. Yeah, it's it's routinely hundreds of thousands of dollars for one of those. Um, it doesn't really matter even what condition it's in. Um, but, but they have. It's not so much the machine you're buying those. You're buying the origins of of the cult of Apple. They've gotten such big brand following these days that to have that machine is is an extraordinary thing. So yeah, we we'd love to have something like that. But more realistically, it's. Prototype devices are always interesting. Having this kind of unofficial prototype of the BBC Micro is is a really amazing thing to have. But yeah, it's it's the stuff that even surprises us actually that we're more interested in. It's quite hard to say specifically what what our dream machines would be because we've got a great collection to tell the stories of home computing at the moment. It's it's those things like the the analog computer from from the bomber or various and other machines of its type. Things that will we'll get offered to us in an email and we'll think we didn't even know that existed that's extraordinary yes give yes please we'd love to have it so we don't know what it is we're most after <laughs> that might be what i'm saying here well speaking of stuff you've got now i mean you know for you personally is it like one one machine or like one area of the the museum you walk past and you also have to sit down and have a go and you're like you know any, any kind of favorite bits the first computers i really used was probably it was acorns of the mid-90s so I remember one of the first machines that we had at home was an Acorn Archimedes. So whenever I, I remember walking past past that the other day um, whilst I was just doing the rounds in our gallery and um, someone had a game on there that just tripped a switch in my head. And I was looking at it going, what, what game is that they're playing? And, and it was a game called Mad Professor Mariarty. For some reason, I don't know why, I can't remember that much about the game, but it was one of the ones that I played with, with my brother and sister an awful lot when I was a kid. And just something about seeing the graphics there just brought it all straight back. Um, often when you're working at the museum or as a fan, when you're working in any museum, sometimes the the kind of fascination and the magic of the objects can wear off a little bit when you see them day in, day out. But it's great to have a moment like that where it all just comes back again. And you realize, yeah, this is what a visitor thinks when they come in here for the first time. They're going to get these nostalgic kicks from it, um, but then also that they can go and learn about various other things too. Yeah, so, so yeah, I've definitely had that experience. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the Archimedes era as well, because I mean, I installed, uh, you know, you can get Risk OS on the Raspberry Pi now, can't you? And yeah, it's, yeah. It's, rediscovering that, and it was all like, you know, middle mouse clicks on Risk OS. It was like, I had to retrain yeah. my mind a lot to use that. 
Yeah, yeah, but it's it's interesting just how quickly it comes back to you. Yeah, you have to spend some time rethinking it, but very quickly the brain just slips back into the old ways of doing things, and it becomes like second nature again. Have you kind of had to pick the area you're going to be in, like 8-bit and kind of to the 60s? Because lots of older museums, uh, like the London Science Museum, has the Babbage engine. And, yeah. you know, there's the Colossal at um, yeah. Bletchley Park. So would, yeah. you, would you go further back? Our interest has always been in personal computing. That's been where we've, we've staked our claim as the museum to come and experience that side of, of the technology. Um, Again, because we've tried to have so much stuff up and working, that naturally lends itself to home computing because it's it's easier to get those machines up and running. But we do we do have ambitions to um, to broaden out, to look much much further into the past, um, and to try and be involved in in research for the future as well. So um, so yeah, we do have these machines going back to to the 60s, um, now to the 40s as well with these new machines. Also, we try and tell the story of what led to computing so we have mechanical calculators from an earlier period and we do have uh, display boards about um, about early developments of computing we're um, going right the way back to the first time the word computer is used in the English language which is 1613 um, when it was used to describe a, a person a job um, it was uh, an arithmetician someone who did computing for a living so so yeah we do have exhibits that go back in time but um but we've really yeah, put our flag down in the in the home computing era. Well, over the weekend I was at Revival, um, and I know Stuart Williams um, from, from your centre was there as well. I mean, do you guys get out to many shows and get to you know mingle with other um, organisations and? Yeah, we've done a lot of shows before. Um, before we we got this location in Cambridge, before we had our kind of a, a proper home for the collection, um, one of the main ways that that the trust behind us um, kept things going was by doing lots of events. So we did lots of things at the Gadget Show before, um, Revival, we've done things at. I think one of the fun, most fun ones we had last year was um, we did three weekends at, um, at Butland. Oh, wow. Um, they said, <laughs> we're doing these, these big science weekends for the people who are staying here. Um, do you want to come along and bring a load of retro computers? And we had this huge space there to fill. And again, um, our fantastic volunteers uh, took time off from work and took their weekends to go down there and set up all this stuff and um, and spend more of it with the public showing them the machines again. So, so yeah, it's really interesting seeing what what opportunities come your way, not just retro shows. We still do plenty of those and they're an absolute blast, but also these educational opportunities too. We did, we did um, the roadshow with the BBC in 2015. They did Make It Digital. Um, it was when the BBC micro bit was first being pushed. Um, and we went all around the country with them doing loads of stuff. Um, I sat for eight hours on the train to go up to Dundee and show off our machines up there. Um, so, yeah, it is really good seeing what sort of opportunities come your way once you get more established as, as a museum. And is that kind of a nightmare, packing everything and getting it, you know, <laughs> transporting it over? Yeah, it can be a little bit difficult. We've It's one thing we've definitely improved on over time. Is It's such an important part of what we do now. But we have our, our very best objects in a, in storage in our archive we tend to have the duplicates ready and stored away in flight cases so we can stick them on a van and get them out there um so yeah that's it's it's still a big headache but we've made it easier over the years well do you guys kind of look at like the future of computer and software preservation because i mean obviously kind of a lot of the deliveries becoming you know digital now and you know there's not like mm. physical discs and tapes and that kind of thing i mean have you guys got like a plan for that um, it's something that, at the moment, given the scale that we run on, is is sadly not feasible. But 
I think it has to be an ambition for the future. Um, there are many museums out there of, of much more well-established major museums who are getting involved in this area. Um, the Museum of Modern Art in New York is actually now um, trying to collect source code um, from developers there. They're looking at games from a design perspective, just as you'd look at a piece of furniture from a design perspective. Um, and they're they've realized that to really collect these things, it's not good enough just to take a disc um, or a cassette or, or whatever it might be. Um, you, you really need that code. And that's only becoming more of, a, of an important thing these days with so much stuff being download only. And there is a swathe of games, of software, of apps on iOS or on Android now, which, which are almost inevitably gonna disappear because there's so many of them being released. There's such a high turnover of products on these platforms that they're going to vanish into the ether. It's going to be so hard to, to preserve these things. So I think any museum um, in that area really does have to think about how they're going to preserve things digitally in the future. But there is still real importance, I think, as I mentioned earlier on, to having, having that physical product there, having the actual object as it was bought off a shelf. But as we've said, it's... People often don't buy software off shelves anymore, so preserving it is a real challenge. I suppose it's like you know having a, a vinyl record, you know, compared to like an MP3, isn't it? You know, it's uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, <laughs> there's something very much more satisfying about having the record with all the inserts and yeah. all the artwork and all the love that's put into that item, rather than just the the music put onto a a download and then sent to you that way. Yeah. yeah, and it's much easier to delete an MP3 as well oh, than smash a vinyl. Yeah, it, becomes, <laughs> it becomes much more throwaway. Yeah, yeah the, it's something to treasure when you have the actual object, yeah. Well, Jeremy, you guys are doing an amazing job and, you know, long may it continue. Um, Ravi and I haven't actually, you know, criminally, we haven't made it down yet, but I think, you know, we definitely will have to over the summer, so... Um... Yeah, come on down and we'll definitely let you have a look up in the archive upstairs to see what you can find. Oh, excellent. My <laughs> uncle lives in Cambridge, so I'll be coming down. Place to stay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, speaking of the summer coming up then, I mean, what have you guys got planned? What exhibitions and nights and stuff you got coming up soon? Yeah, various. We've got our standard retro and family gaming nights coming up in a big way. We've got lots of educational workshops for, for families and kids on holidays and all sorts of like that. Got so one of the biggest events we've got actually is in um, at the end of the summer in September. Um, we're holding the Retro Computer Festival, where we're inviting anybody who's got any interesting collection of their own to come and share it. We've also we've already got quite a few different um, exhibitors coming down to show off stuff at that, um, including um, the guys from the Retro Computer Museum in Leicester, who yeah. are uh, they're a terrific little outfit doing um, stuff similar to what we do. They have um, lots of retro machines there for people to come and play on. So we're reaching out to other people in the museum and heritage world, but also just to private collectors and saying, show your stuff off, get it down there, let everybody have a look at it. So it should be a really fantastic weekend, that one. And what's your website if you want to find out more? Website is www.computinghistory.org.uk. You can find all the information on there, and there's a What's On page on there as well. Um, We're also on Twitter and Facebook. The Twitter handle is at Computer Museum. That's a good way to get to us. Fantastic. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been so interesting. It's been great to be on. Thanks for having me.